This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Halal Yadin. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Valerie Hebert. I'm a professor of history and interdisciplinary studies at Lakehead University in Aurelia, Ontario, Canada. We are here to talk about the book that you edited, Framing the Holocaust, Photographs of a Mass Shooting in Latvia in 1941. Um, Would you like to give an overview of the book and how it came to be? Sure. So a number of years ago, I organized a workshop at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington on the topic of atrocity photography. Although it was at the Holocaust Museum, we broadened our focus to include images of other uh, genocides, mass crime. And I invited scholars from various fields. There were a number of historians trained in different fields, but also um, we had uh, a legal scholar. We had a photojournalist, war photojournalist turned anthropologist. We had literature specialists. Um, and we were all in some way engaged in researching atrocity photography. And part of our workshop time was presenting uh, our individual projects to each other, but we also used our time to look at um, archival materials from the Holocaust Museum. And what I noticed was that the most interesting conversations happened when we were all looking at the same material because as a function of our, our training and, and um, of our academic background, different things would stand out to us about the images and we would bring different questions, different insights to the images. And um, I thought we really had struck on something that I hadn't ever seen you know, published before. And so that's where the idea took root that we would uh, collaborate on a volume where all of us would be examining the same uh, photographs. And I chose these photographs because they are, um, exceptionally rare within the uh, vast collection of Holocaust photographs. Um, These 12 document um, a shooting that took place in Latvia on a beach uh, called Shkeda, just outside Liepaja, it's a port city in in Latvia, on the 15th of December, 1941. Um, And they they document the sequential steps in this mass shooting and What's rare about them is that the 12 of them survive together. We have, well, we'll never know the entire, like the, we'll never be able to quantify the full number of Holocaust photographs that exist. 
a million would be a low estimate. Um, but so many were taken by amateurs for their own reasons and, you know, are still hidden away in attics and, and dresser drawers that will never be able to um, understand the full measure of the visual record. Um, these 12 were taken, uh, well, they've been linked to four people. They were discovered in um, a bureau drawer in an SS officer's uh, quarters, whether it was his office or his home, there's still some confusion about that. Um, they were discovered by a uh, Latvian Jewish man who had been tasked with um, installing or fixing some electrical outlet in this space. He opened the drawer, saw the negatives, held them up to the light and understood what it was that they, what these photographs were, smuggled the negatives out, had prints made secretly, smuggled the negatives back in, hid the photographs um, for years and was, and himself miraculously survived uh, the German occupation. And when the Soviets arrived to uh, liberate Latvia, he turned them over to investigators then. So that 12 were taken of this event, that those 12 survived together, that we can identify um, the time and place that they were taken and even identify some of the people pictured. This makes them an incredibly rare collection. And so um, for their rarity and for their uh, historical, um, the fact that we can document so much about their history was the reason why we, uh, both of those things were the reasons why we cho I chose to put these photographs at the center of the book. And you also write that you were really interested in focusing specifically on atrocity photographs. Why, why was that? We deliberately restricted our attention to atrocity photographs because it's those kinds of images that push us to the limits of what we can bear emotionally, intellectually. And those are the images that ask the most pressing ethical questions about how these photographs continue to circulate um, and the responsibilities we as researchers and educators might have in how we use those photographs, display them, teach with them. Um, there, and I came to this whole area, this whole research area, because although I'd been teaching Holocaust history for over 20 years, and although I used images of uh, atrocity images when lecturing on, you know, the world wars or on, you know, post-war situations, I had a real ambivalence about showing um, suffering and dead Jewish bodies in the classroom. And I took that, I had worked with a professor at the University of Toronto. He himself was uh, a survivor. He'd lost many family members in Europe and he he couldn't uh, he couldn't bear these photographs. He said, you know, it's too much. It's it's disrespectful to show them. And I I really took that to heart. And I I I I simply left them out. I, although I used photographs extensively in my teaching, that was a line I didn't cross. But it was photographs that had actually inspired my interest in history more broadly. And I kept coming back to them. I, there was something that was. I thought there's something about these photographs that are still so compelling. And it was my own desire to work through their place in understanding this history, in teaching this history, and in, in researching this history that brought me to the field of Holocaust photography. And 
uh, my contribution to the, uh, one of my contributions to the volume is making that argument uh, about why we should engage these photographs. So the, there are important uh, ethical arguments against them. Um, for a start, these are photographs that were taken by perpetrators. The photographs themselves are um, a separate part of the cruelty that was inflicted, right? It's not enough that they were ripped from their homes, brought to this place, made to undress, and then uh, and then killed, but that they were also photographed in that process. It's like an extra layer of, of torture and humiliation, right? So the photograph itself is an artifact of that cruelty. Um, among the ethical arguments against engagement of these photographs is, you know, is, 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 you know, the photographs exist because this, this cruelty was inflicted on these people. And so in continuing to look at them or display them, are we not continuing that cruelty? Are we not reviolating uh, those people? Um, we also, just as a dynamics of, uh, you know, as a function of how photographs are made, when we look at those photographs, we actually stand in the same position that the perpetrator did, right? We sort of reenact that that unequal and um, exploitative relationship that the perpetrator had vis-a-vis -vis the, the people he was photographing. Um, and, you know, that, that these people, they never gave their consent to be photographed, that they're captured in these moments of total vulnerability and exposure and uh, humiliation. So we should be aware of those kinds of arguments. Those should, those should, um, be in our mind when we engage them. And it's not that those concerns go away, but there are also so many other um, reasons that uh, support continued engagement with these photographs. And it's something that I think this book uh, achieves, not just in sort of the ethical arguments that um, move us towards engaging with these photographs, but also the various chapters show us just how rich these images are for sources of, of insight and understanding. And they show how many stories these photographs tell, right? That okay. that initial story, um, the one created by the perpetrator when he took that image is not this single and only an exclusive narrative um, that attaches to these images. Right. I do want to go back to that. I have one question about uh the book in general before we get into kind of the content um and maybe the answer is nothing because this book came out of all of the now contributors sitting in a room together um but as as the editor was there anything that was surprising or noteworthy once the contributions started coming in about how the volume came together i don't think so much that there was something uh knew that came out of this for me because again i you know it was it was building on a conversation that had taken place and in ongoing conversations me with the different contributors as the um as their chapters took shape you know the, the quality of the contributions is is excellent and i was so you know what started is just sort of us talking around a room that they could you know translate that uh, to the page was um was wonderful. And uh, I wouldn't say I was surprised by the the quality, but I was gratified and I, you know, I was validated in, in sort of uh, having faith that, that uh, we could collaborate on this kind of project and produce something truly uh, unique and, and excellent. So um, 
one thing I will say about the process, even just of my own writing, my own contributions to it, I the other uh, part that I wrote was introduces the photographs themselves and researching all the different ways they'd been captioned by various archives and uh, simply, you know, conducting these searches on the images themselves is, you know, getting uh, an insight into just how many versions of these photographs exist, that they've been cropped differently, that there's different obviously different prints made of them, that different um, versions of them exist uh, in different places. And so it it tells me that, you know, copies circulated even before, you know, these 12 were handed over to the Soviets. And also just in returning again and again and again to these images over the course of years as this book was coming together, I would find new things. Right. And it wasn't just from, you know, the contributions of the different authors who, you know, again, they're they're noticing different things and elaborating on those in their chapters, which would, you know, spark something new for me. Um, but even in my own, uh, you know, re-engagement with these images, you'd notice different details. You'd see how they fit together in, in different ways. Um, and that was, uh, there was this, you know, ongoing process of discovery, even, you know, one would think after I'd already sort of understood everything about these images, seen them so many times. In fact, they still just gave and gave and gave in terms of their, their richness and complexity. Right. I want to go back to this core ethical question. Um, I think throughout throughout the book, there are two strands of complication that are really, I mean, there are more than two, but two that are quite prominent in a lot of the contributors' arguments. And one is that one of the ethical complications is simply engaging with these photographs, period, given the kind of suffering and vulnerability in them and the other is the way that the engaging with the photograph puts you in the view of the perpetrator um and it made me think of a a collection that i know quite well uh which is at the archive that i work at that i will link in the episode notes but it is this collection of this jewish historical commission that went out to document pogroms between, I think, 1918 and 1921, primarily in Ukraine. Um, and they collected names and statistics and things like that, but they also took an enormous number of pictures, many of which have survived and we've now digitized and put online with no restrictions. Um, and I, it made me, it made me wonder about your thoughts about these these are not perpetrator photographs. These were Jews with a goal of documenting atrocities. And does the fact that when we're looking at kind of the shooter's view, if the shooter is not the perpetrator, if the shooter is really striving to document, and in their view, that documentation is a sort of justice-oriented, how does that complicate these ethical questions i mean i think i think a lot of the ethical questions of just viewing right i mean mass graves i think those still stand but how much of it to you is the fact that specifically the skaja photographs are taken by perpetrators 
That's an excellent question. And I think it gets to the heart of um, the so much of what we can and should understand about photographs hinges on understanding the circumstances of their creation, right? And so um, a suffering body taken, uh, a photograph of a suffering body taken with a view to trying to, you know, alert a wider community to uh, some kind of crime or persecution in process, right, that it might prompt some kind of intervention, or to document for posterity, you know, the motives for that kind of photograph are so completely different from the photographer who takes a picture where it's it's to humiliate in the moment, it's to celebrate in the time after, it's to revisit for some kind of, you know, personal titillation. Um, that completely alters, right, how we understand that image, even though the actual visual content might look very similar, right? Um broken bodies, naked bodies, uh, a crime, you know, actually unfolding before the lens, right? So the, the visual information might be similar, but its meaning is different. And even the same photograph can have both meanings. So for example, you know, the, the skate of photographs um, were no doubt taken by, you know, the you know, a member of the perpetrator group. Um, they're given the focus on, um, naked or nearly naked women and on children in moments of dis of you know extreme terror there seems to be some kind of added preoccupation there it wasn't just documenting a successful shooting a well-organized shooting but you know there's some kind of uh, fixation on on those particular aspects of the day um you know it simply adds to the sordid history of those images but looking at those and, and understanding what it is that they document, that same visual information becomes an indictment of that of that crime and of, of that photographer's impulse, right, to try and and um, immortalize that kind of suffering. Yeah, um, you know, I think also, you know, similar to the the photographic um, projects you described to document the pogroms, uh, you know, there were efforts you know, life risking efforts undertaken by photographers in the ghettos, for example, Mendel Grossman, Henrik Ross. These were professional photographers who were employed to um, take official photographs for the Jewish councils, but in secret and at great risk to themselves also sought to document the experience in, in the ghettos. And I'm thinking of um, some photographs taken by Mendel Grossman of the um, it was a Jewish family whose job it was to collect uh, human waste in the ghetto. And they were literally covered in, in excrement themselves. I mean, it was one of the most terrible jobs, most dangerous jobs because of the, the risk of disease and, you know, the kind of work that was so debasing. And yet the father in, in, in speaking with, with Grossman said he actually wanted those photographs taken. He said, you know, let us be captured like this because there was a sense that this should be documented, that there should be some kind of record, some kind of memory of this. And there is something that is just so um, undeniable, undeniable about 
photographs, right? The photograph exists because the thing existed, the scene existed, right? So that that sort of one-to-one <laughs> relationship of of the item to you know the the scene is um transcends language, time, geography. I mean, they understood it at the time that those images were made. And that's that same quality that continues to compel our attention now. And so I think we need to take seriously the um, that persecuted Jews themselves wanted those photographs to be made and to exist. And, you know, when I think about, um, you know, the photographs at the core of, of this book, we have them because a Latvian Jewish man risked his life to preserve them. You know, had he not done that, it's very unlikely we'd have uh, certainly all 12. As I said, it, it seems that prints were made and circulated. One popped up in a trial uh, in the 1960s in East Germany. So we might have seen here or there, but to preserve this 12 and uh, to be able to identify the people uh, pictured in them, we owe that to um um, to Zivcon, right? To David Zivcon, who discovered the photos and preserved them. You think also of the four photographs uh, that were taken in Birkenau by a member of the Zonderkommando uh, and smuggled out to the Polish underground. Again, at enormous risk. And, and we see too there images, you know, some of those images include uh, naked women on the very brink of being killed. So, you know, the, the visual overlap or the thematic overlap is very uh, clear. Um, that so great a risk was undertaken to take those photos and preserve them. I think that also bestows on us a certain responsibility to have the, the courage and the fortitude actually to engage them. Right. Cause it's very, it's very difficult to, I think part of the power of putting the fact that, and again, this is throughout the book, this, idea that in looking in the photograph looking at the photograph you are in the shoes of the person who shot the photograph Mm -hmm. that feeling that you yourself are now violating these people is a reflection of the fact that they were violated and having this strong emotional reaction to that is powerful and appropriate um and and i think that that feeling should linger like i i would be if you read this book and came away thinking, well, I, then I can look at these photos and not feel conflicted, I, I would say then I've missed the mark, right? Because, and it's something that I try and get at in, in my chapter that just because we might come to the place where we understand what these photos can can offer us and understand, um, you know, <laughs> honor, right? The the desire of Zivcon that they be known, that they be understood and and, and uh, you know, as a different authors lay out in their chapters, there are ways of engaging these that actually restore agency to the people pictured, right? That, you know, as a, a record of an event that the Nazis would otherwise have wished to deny, right? I mean, all these reasons exist for um, continuing to engage these photographs, but they're not redeemed, right? We don't feel better about them. And, um you know, when we read Holocaust survivor accounts, or and indeed also accounts of survivors of other genocides, right? A theme that I've noticed—it's something that I introduced briefly in my chapter—is that having this knowledge, you know, of this experience, 
having th these memories continues to burden them. And, and, and then we also, you know, share in that burden in, in, if we have the courage to listen to them, to take these stories in, right? So it's not that um, the pain is less. It's not that the, uh, the, um, that sense of ongoing violation dis entirely disappears, but sort of alongside with that, we can see how these photographs continue to be important and continue to have things, valuable things to, to teach us and offer us. That I think leads nicely into one of my questions, which is this phrase documentary photography, which of course comes up quite a bit. Um, in the context of these photographs, would you call this documentary photography? If so, what are the limits of that? I mean, there's all of, there's, I think, a really, to me, impressive amount of consideration of the perpetrators. I think a lot of times when people look at photographs, it's very, here's what we're getting from the visual image in front of us. Um, and contributors write about the pornographic elements. Something that struck me was this idea that these photographs were taken because perhaps this there was just a, a pride in the work, right? Like these mass murders were the work and they were doing a good job and they wanted to document it. You know, they we talk about how the photographs were distributed, sort of like souvenir cards. Mm -hmm. Um so I guess can can these be documentary photographs for us and have other purposes, other functions for other people who have engaged with them? Is documentary photography even a useful phrase? I just, there's there's a lot there. And I have now asked like seven questions. <laughs> Feel free to pick anyone. No, that's all right. That's all right. Um, you know, to my mind, documentary photography is, is actually sort of neutral, right? To document something, you know, to uh, make a record of something. Um, I think, you know, what that actually means has a lot to do with the motivation for that recording, right? So, you know, the the German photographer taking these photographs and, and something, you know, it's explored in the book, what are the possible motivations here? We don't really know why these photographs exist. We just received them. Um, and yes, it could be that this was an exemplary shooting action. It was a larger one, the scale of Einsatzgruppen shootings, this, this uh, skewed towards, you know, a larger one. It took place over three days. It was very well organized. And the kinds of photographs that um, were taken, the, the choices the photographer made, there seems to have been a deliberate attempt to document the process from, you know, when the Jews arrived at the site to their actual death. Um, and so it suggests, right, an attempt to try and actually document your successful, well-organized shooting action. There is testimony that there was a delegation of high-ranking military officials visiting the site, right? So there's sort of even more reason why there was like some... This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Standout reason why this should be um, uh, documented in this way. Um, but then along with that, was this photographer also documenting things that spoke to his own particular preoccupations. I mentioned before the focus on, on women, on naked women, on uh, children. And so whether that spoke to his own appetites or to some, to some appetites that he knew others shared, I mean, we just know it was common practice for photographs to be traded and shared. And, you know, even the soldiers, SS, they would make albums and they would include photographs even of events they hadn't themselves been part of or witnessed, right? That there was a certain kind of collection, collecting impulse of these kinds of images. And so, you know, that was that part of the impulse in taking these photos, those were ones that, you know, there wasn't a market for. Um, but then those very same photographs, I mean, nothing changes about them, but, you know, us approaching them today and understanding the circumstances under which they were created and understanding, um, you know, with the understanding of the Holocaust, you know, that we've gained over the intervening decades of historical uh, research, those very same photographs document the cruelty of this <laughs> event. Uh, they restore actual you know, faces to what otherwise are kind of these abstract numbers, right? These sort of identityless figures um, that they, you know, tell us something about the um, pitilessness of the perpetrators, right? That, again, it wasn't enough that they were killing them, but that they also had them endure the humiliation of being photographed, right? So it tells us more about... Um, uh, it documents something about the perpetrators as well. And so, you know, documentary photography, sort of returning to the initial question, I think is kind of this, this neutral term and, and what's being documented uh, depends entirely on the motivations of the photographer at the time and then on the positionality of the viewer afterwards, right? What it is that we understand and see from these photographs, which might be the actual opposite of the photographer's initial intentions. Right. It's there. And then it in some ways lives independently of the creator. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I want to pull out one thing that you said, because I think this is a really interesting element of the book, this idea of restoring identity to the identityless. There's a really interesting process that happens for these photographs after they are, you know, um, given to the Soviets in one piece. Um, and can you just talk briefly about how we know what we know about the people who are identified to varying degrees of certainty? Mm -hmm. Well, um, so David Zivkon, who uh, first discovered the negatives and had the prints made, he recognized some of the people 
uh, that were captured on film. He survived the Holocaust because, or the German occupation, because he was hidden away um, along with uh, 11 others. And uh, one of those others was a man named Kalman Linkemer. He knew some of the people who were in those photographs. He saw them as well. And when they were handed over to the Soviets, both Zivkon and Linkemer were interviewed and they interviewed other locals and gathered up some information that was were those initial steps in identifying some of the people in the photographs. And then in the time uh, afterwards, um, other efforts were made to try and identify uh, the people in the photographs. What's interesting is when you, and, and it was for this reason that I included uh, the different captions that have been assigned to the photographs by various archives is there's conflicting information. The same person is identified, you know, or, or multiple identifications are assigned to the same person. In another case, it's clearly two different women, but they are consistently given the same name. Um, <clears throat> And so this, this question of identification is a slippery one. There have been other uh, efforts in uh, Dan Newman's chapter. He discusses a film, right, where a relative of David Zivkon actually uh, took the photographs to um, police agencies in, in France that had the technology to try and visually match, you know, photographs to other known photographs of, uh, of these same people. Um, we were able to obtain pre-war passport photos and and match them up. But all of this is just, um, I think, so Im important. And it's, it's very difficult to do with most Holocaust photographs. They are these quasi-orphans, right? Where we don't know who took the photograph. We don't know where and when it was taken. We don't know who's I, who was actually captured on film. Um, but we've been able to uh, provide identities to so many of the people who are who are captured in, in these photographs. And that's rare. And that goes a long way to piercing that intractable figure six million, right? Okay. Um, and I think that's it's a it's a way that we can um personalize and individualize you know the experience of the Holocaust. And I think that's what really um can uh have a great impact on on readers of the book or on, on people who are interested in in this history when they can um individualize that experience i think then it it hits at a much deeper level absolutely and i think as an archivist this really speaks to me about the power of these collections the fact that we have 12 photographs from the same role you know, you need those 12 photographs in a row, you need those passport photographs, you need all these related materials that really build on each other um, to be able to say this is not, you need them side by side to say this is or isn't the same person. That is so absent from so much of, if you think about the big conceptual archive of the Holocaust, just completely missing, um, it really just, again, just the general goal of the archive, period, but speaks to why these photographs are so remarkable as a an object of study. Absolutely. In somewhat of a different direction, not talking about people at all, the ocean figures prominently in some of these 
some of these photographs. And one of the contributors, Danny Hoffman, writes, the ocean is rarely incidental in modern photography. Um, I think this is also especially important because I don't want to say the erasure of the Holocaust and how it played out in the Baltic states. There's plenty of information to be found, but I think the average person's conception of the Holocaust is really, you know, woods, Europe, or Eastern Europe, mass um, industrial killing sites. And I think there's much less understanding of the Baltic states, these later mass killings, the Holocaust by bullets. Um, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to ask a leading question. <laughs> I will say for me personally, um, I was struck by the sight of the ocean in, for a lot of the reasons that Hoffman writes that the ocean is striking. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just want to ask more broadly about how the sense of place plays into viewers' understandings of the photographs and how that impacts their understanding of what was carried out. Yeah, it's, the beach is an atypical landscape for the Holocaust. Uh, it's true. I think when most people, you know, picture it, it's, it's camps or it's ghettos, it's urban settings, it's built environments, it's um, uh, barbed wire and, and barracks. But, you know, the Holocaust by bullets is, is um, a lesser known aspect of, of the whole trajectory of the history so even that you know I think is is will be new to to many readers um but even if they do understand something about that phase of the genocide again it's it's more closely linked to forests or fields so the beach is is an atypical um landscape and I think you know when we think about what's the beach in our understand it's like a place where you go on holiday right it's a place for families to spend time with each other and so there is that juxtaposition between you know the the beach and you know this mass murder that's actually being carried out there um i think you know it, and um danny hoffman talks about the beach setting but also dan magalo's chapter right uh speaks directly to this quality of of the images and reminds us that you know further back in in literary tradition the beach was a place of, of foreboding of danger right and then it sort of only later becomes a place for leisure and uh family time um i thought you know one of the really fascinating things that he brings out in his chapter is you know the the links we can draw between you know holiday photography and these photographs and there are continuities in the way that these images are framed and I'm, I'm sure you know listeners readers will identify with this you go to the beach what do you do we take a photo right and what you line up with the ocean behind you because you want the water to show it doesn't matter you know like you want it to be clear you're on a beach and what do we have in these photographs but the perpetrator lining these people up and, you know, like there's something they're half dressed, you know, there's distress on their faces, like something's not right about this. But it, there's like these reflexive habits, right, in the way that this photographer framed the image. This is the image he wanted to preserve. And it so closely um, mimics the kind of, you know, like innocent, you know, uh, 
happy beach photography that that we all understand or, or remember, you know, have some experience with. And I think, you know, there's a deeper significance to be understood there that, you know, I've been teaching uh, Holocaust history for over 20 years. And uh, most students come to the, the class thinking, you know, that perpetrators had to be forced to do this, right? That they it was against their will and it was only under threat of death that they, um, you know, raised their guns against uh, innocent Jewish people. And it, they were, you know, completely conflicted about this. And, um, and, you know, the evidence doesn't support that assumption. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, you look at these photographs, for example, and like that he could take a photo like that. He could take a quasi holiday souvenir photo from that scene speaks to a lack of internal conflict, right? Like that that are these photographic habits, right? Even just that he wanted to make these souvenirs, that he wanted to preserve these things, and that he uses the same kind of devices and and tropes, right, in creating those things, that there is much more continuity to be found between the, you know, pre-war, you know, traditions, habits, impulses, whatever, and, you know, what exists even in those moments of, you know, extreme violence and distress. So, um, right. this is everyday life, and those kind of habits would continue. It wasn't an exceptional day. That's it. That's exactly it, right? And that's when you when you situate these in sort of the larger, um, you know, visual uh, history of the Holocaust. You know, the kinds of, the people photographed what they found interesting. People photographed what was important to them. People photographed the things they wanted to remember. And that hints at, you know, and in the absence of being able to speak to the photographer and and trust that we're getting honest answers about their motivations, you know, these repeated patterns, right? Tells us something about the normalization of this violence and, and of this experience, right? That, that, that those impulses survived even into war and genocide, that that desire to preserve and remember and revisit, right, even these horrific scenes um, tells us something about the the mindset of the perpetrators and, and of these photographers. I think uh, more than one person quoted Sontag on this, and I will paraphrase it poorly, but basically that people don't take photographs and unhappy, unhappy moments that they, (laughs) they're occupied in unhappy moments. These are, these are everyday scenes in a way. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that, I want to ask about continuity in a different way. Um, So one of the chapters is from Hilary Earle, who talks about the pedagogy of using these photographs and Holocaust photographs in the classroom. Um, And she talks about the ways that she contextualizes them in relation to sort of modern, I would say, genres of photography, like big game hunting trophy photographs. Um, Are there any other connections that you would draw between the SCADA photographs and more contemporary types of photographs we are making and circulating today? Perpetrators continue to photograph you know, they're, they're victims, uh, you know, so that, that genre of, of photography continues. Um, 
photojournalists continue to seek out those images that actually document, you know, suffering and death, right? And for some, you know, consciousness raising purpose for some in the interest of justice or or legal documentation with a view to, uh, you know, post facto, ex post facto uh, prosecution. Um, So we see similar kinds of photographs being made. Students you know, I'm thinking about the age of students in in my classes. Um, the pornographic element of these photographs is, and and the fact that they were taken and circulated without the person's um, consent is something that they readily understand, right? That they understand that kind of vulnerability and the humiliation involved, and and the harm that that. Um, does in the moment and that continues to exist even when that person is no longer with us right that 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 they there's were captured in that vulnerability people even if they are there's some responsibility in the way we're engaging with them even if they're dead even if it was a long time ago yeah yeah well and that's and it's a thought exercise that i i i conduct in my classes and even with myself and and in that working through of you know what really justifies our our presence here and in, in looking at those is if that were me you know if that were my my grandmother or my child and that was the only visual record that still exists of that person um or myself would i would i want it to exist would i want people still to look at it and yeah in in my chapter where I, you know I, I work through this whole argument, there's a place where, and I remember writing it. Um, so I focus on on one photograph in the twelve, and it's the only photograph where uh, one of the subjects is actively trying to hide from the camera. She's a little girl, ten. Zarella Epstein was her name. And it's the photograph where, you know, four women and this girl have been lined up, uh, drawn out from, you know, where they were made to it to undress. And it was very clearly a, a orchestrated staged photograph. This photography, you know, he put them together, lined them up, you know, coordinated them looking at him. Like, I mean, the level of interaction that must have preceded this image is is greater than what we see in 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 the others. Um, and she's she's hiding. She's she's has her head bowed and she's partially hidden behind her mother. And to me, that was the photograph that asked the most pressing question, like how she's hiding. How can we justify looking at this? And, you know, I, I work through the arguments sort of for and against it. Um, and towards the end, I say that photograph rescued her from oblivion. We know her name because that photograph exists. And as I wrote that, I like, I felt my own blood run cold um, and I thought that's a conclusion that I think will probably anger some some readers. And even and it's something that I was speaking about earlier, like the discomfort doesn't go away, right? But um we have this this record of her and of her suffering. And you write I'm sorry, that, go ahead. Well well and and that it's so searing. Um, you know, more than, you know, we can imagine that scene having played out. We can, we can read a, a verbal description of that, but to see it, I think, you know, it, it's, it's blistering power with that image. And where I come to is that there is something uh, worthwhile that, that 
that that truth was documented, that it's something that that we still can engage with. And it's I, I don't expect everyone to agree with me, um, but I, I do hope at least that the book lays out enough that readers will uh, at least have a more nuanced um, understanding of these issues and be able to think through their own positions with a little more um, complexity. I totally agree. I also think for Sorella Epstein, for this little girl, you write that this was an act of defiance, um, which I leads me to our final question. I will say I agree with that read. And I think having this record that this 10-year-old girl in some way in the minutes leading up to her murder was able to resist in some way what this perpetrator wanted I think that is if that's her only legacy this is the only sort of physical legacy or you know maybe her birth certificate is somewhere that's a different thing I do think that that is reading that and writing about it and honoring it is really a powerful way to engage with her and her very short life Anyway, that brings me to my last question. Understandably, and there's no way to avoid this throughout framing the Holocaust, the contributors are making these sort of assessments. I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but it's close enough of what the subjects in the photographs may be feeling. Um, there's a lot of this person, there's terror. They're looking at the camera steadfastly. Um, and even within the within the book, some people interpret the same figure in not contradictory ways, right? Somebody can be in terror and confused at the same time, um, but in different ways, for sure. And I was wondering, just on a personal level, how you think about your own positionality and how it might affect the way that you interpret affect in these photographs mm -hmm. um it's an excellent question i i can't remember the first time i saw these photographs because some of them appear over and over again in publications in in museum exhibits like when we were looking at the series of 12 uh at the holocaust museum it's like oh yeah i know those ones um but then to see the full set, I mean, seeing the full set was was new. But that said, there was never a time where I saw them and didn't understand they were connected to the Holocaust, that, you know, what I was looking at were, were Jewish victims. And right. So um, there was always some historical context that helped me to understand what it was I was seeing. Um, and like I was never at risk of of sort of that that perpetrator right. perspective of you know like the well they're also sorry just real quick yeah I remember now I think it's Hillary Earl I don't I will I will go back and confirm for the notes but one of the contributors talks about showing these photographs in a classroom the beach photographs and asking the students what they think is happening yeah. and the students think it's a day at a beach you right. know yeah so there is aside from your own you know understanding there's also just the general understanding that it's a holocaust photograph is really of course key 
Yeah, and and that's already like that's so much further yeah. ahead, right? I mean, so yeah, Hillary Earle, she has um her chapters on on pedagogy and she introduces these photographs and she starts with the one and it's of members of the Grinfeld family walking on the beach and they're at we know they're walking towards the the actual shooting site, but to a newcomer to these photographs who hasn't seen them and doesn't even yeah, hasn't even been told they're, you know, it's a Holocaust photograph. It's a family on, you know, it's like mother and children on a beach. And it's sort of only like with a few more seconds looking at it, like, okay, something's off here, right? They should look happier or like, why are they all sort of walking in a row? Or um, So it's like the, the unsettling, there's something unsettling about them, but that emerges more slowly. So, you know, taken in isolation, some of these photographs do not necessarily suggest Holocaust. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, it speaks to the importance of having some kind of historical context, right, to and and one's own viewing position may have more or less of that, you know, um, when they first uh, see the images. Um, there was something else I wanted to say. Yeah, I, you know, the positionality like I, I I come back to, you know, what I was describing before about, you know, if this was my family, if these were my loved ones, I think, you know, I, I would have a different kind of relationship or even like, I'm, I'm not Jewish myself, you know, so I'm not as, as intimately connected to the, the community, you know, represented there. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I understand that, there's a certain, uh, I, I am a step removed, you know, several steps removed, but, it, you know, some significant ones where, um, you know, I, there might not be the same, the same uh, response. And, and, and also just being, you know, a scholar of the Holocaust, where I have been studying this material for, well, now going on 30 years, um, this fits into a kind of, you know, <laughs> You have a framework. You know, I have a framework that, so, you know, I I can't look at these photos without that, right? And the fact that I kind of, oh, like I've always, they've always been sort of part of that visual repertoire for me for this history. Um, And so, you know, I I can't look at them with with totally naive or or fresh eyes. So I can't speak to, um, you know, all the different ways they might, they might strike people. But, you know, that's, it was one of the things that that we achieved with the book, I think, is to um, demonstrate for for readers uh, that the uh, perspective of of position, right, informs so much about what we obtain from these photographs. Absolutely, and, and that this conversation could continue, right? That we could bring in so many other different um, perspectives on this, and and in fact, that you know, one of my larger goals with the book was that this is the kind of method that should inform our analysis of photograph historical photographs uh you know beyond the holocaust beyond beyond this book that um they are such incredibly rich and complex sources for insight and understanding that the more perspectives we can bring to bear on them uh the more they can reveal to us i think that's a great place to end um thank you so much for taking the time for this interview this has been so interesting and for me so generative um and i really do appreciate it thank you so much halal i really appreciated the questions